Okay, gentlemen, thanks for being here. Let me um, let me give a brief intro. We've got uh, Alex Norcia from Filter Magazine with us and Jim McDonald from Vaping 360. In my uh, opinion, two of the most estimable and thoughtful journalists um, in the vaping policy harm reduction beats. Um, so I'm really, really pleased you guys could both make time and I'm excited for our, our chat. So thank you both for, for being here today. Well, thanks for having me. I think you guys are both repeat guests, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I've been here before. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. okay. I feel like the I feel like the manager who who's got the you know the the heart of the batting order coming up again. So, oh, good lord. <laughs> um, there's baseball metaphors going around vape world today. I don't know if you saw uh, um, Skip Murray put up a terrific thread today, and uh, Charles Gardner said it was like hitting a home run, and that 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 ticked off some animated gifs of baseball and so it's, there's baseball in the air in our world well the baseball players are locked out kind of like the vaping industry so. i know well that's actually a good parallel a good <laughs> parallel isn't it like two intractable sides that you know think the absolute worst of one another arguing over minutiae and with everyone else like you know pounding the table mm-hmm. it'll be like the like the e-sig summit preview <laughs> um well, I'm glad you guys are both here. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so I think we'll, uh, you know, use the use the topics that we had um, sent you earlier as kind of a guidepost, but see where the see where the the chat goes. I I wanted to start, I think, with something that's kind of been floating around the I don't know sen- sense of the sense of the Senate kind of way about the meaning of harm reduction, and that notion I think has gotten. Uh, you know, has surrounded a lot of the conversations that have happened in the last week or two, um, not just about, you know, vital strategies, which we'll touch on, but, you know, and a lot of the other coverage, too. And I, I wondered, I wanted to maybe start with you, Alex, and see if you sense that, too, that, that this kind of grappling over what harm reduction means, how that's understood, and especially how to persuade people, you know, to, to join in that that movement, if, if you sense that that conversation has been heightened and how do, do you, sorry, go ahead. And, 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 and how you see that. I mean, t- tell, I'd like to see you, I'd like to hear your view on, you know, how you regard harm reduction and why you think it's rising to the fore in the, the vaping policy conversation lately. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, are you asking in a sense why the larger harm reduction community community doesn't seem to be on board with tobacco harm reduction yeah, in a yeah, yeah. way. I mean, that's a good way to ask it. Yeah. That's a good way to get at it. I'd say. Um, yeah. I don't have an answer for that. I mean, I can, I can list sort of my conjectures, I guess, but um, I think at the heart of it is probably the idea that big tobacco slash big vape or whatever you want to call the big, well-moneyed larger side of the industry um, is explicitly trying to, you know, lure a new, generation into nicotine dependence right and i think in the harm reduction community at large um their political bent seems to be or is very much sort of anti-corporate uh sort of swings more to the left so i think there's a certain skepticism and difficulty to sort of accept that everyone's on one side but that being said um i do i am optimistic just as time goes on that um the two groups will be more one than they are if that tracks i guess so i mean I, but it, you know it sort of stri- it strikes me jim mcdonald that that you know harm reduction as a i don't know public health principle it might not be you know laser defined but you know <laughs> it seems pretty clear that tobacco harm reduction would fall within that and yet and yet you see so many people in public health trying to exclude it do you, do you see it that way Yeah, but I don't think, I think you need to separate people in public health from longtime harm reduction advocates. Um, A lot of the, so for instance, the the, uh, vital strategies thing where they're putting money into um, promoting harm reduction in the United States, I I think that... um, they're trying to convince public health as much as they are the public. So I, I don't think that 
everybody in public health is necessarily a harm harm reduction advocate. And I think that the, you know, serious drug harm reduction advocates, a lot of them, grasp the idea of tobacco harm reduction right off the bat. Now, if they aren't all like jumping up and down and cheering, that might take time, like Alex says, because, but the concept is the same. And I think once they think about it a little bit, they're going to come around. As it is, you've got a lot of people like, certainly Ethan Nadelman's been a leading light, but uh, um, various other people in, in, uh, drug, in drug policy circles who are very, very pro-harm reduction uh, when it comes to smokers. So I, I think it, it is going to be a matter of taking time, and it's going to take some work. And, uh, uh, you know, on top of that, I don't want to do like a monologue here, but <laughs> there are a lot of vapors, a lot, and I see them all the yeah. time, uh, that are <laughs> just ridiculous right. on this issue. Right. They think that vaping was the invention, of the, you know, the very beginning of harm reduction and drug harm reduction is a joke. So those people need to sit down and have a talk with themselves. Well, I, I've noticed I've noticed some of those dynamics too, and that's a, a good question I think for Alex because Filter's done so much good work on harm reduction, in so many other spaces. I mean, Alex, I guess at, at the risk of putting you on the spot, give give us your best evangel evangelizing if you could about why folks in the vaping movement ought to embrace harm reduction more broadly? Well, I would say I would say two things. One, to Jim's point that this is going to take time, I think is sort of obvious, right? We're only now talking about general harm reduction and how it's working. Um, it's only now caught on, right? Even in sort of small incremental steps, right? I mean, for decades, people are sort of smashing their heads against the walls, right? And then, you know, you have two syringe exchange programs, be legalized, quote unquote. I mean, they were operating before in New York City and you see all of these overdose reversed immediately, right? Like thousands of them. So I will say that I think as time goes on and the evidence becomes even more overwhelming than it is, uh, people don't have much of a choice other than to um, accept it or look more ridiculous than they always already do. The second thing, um, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it just comes down to politics and how people view these things, but I would I would say that um, if your argument is if you're somebody who thinks you know the government has no business in my affairs, I should be able to put whatever I want into my body. Um, I respect that view, but I think in terms of you know winning over a sort of political faction or lawmakers, that there's other arguments to be had, and I think harm reduction, which is basically just you know uh, a human right, in my view. Um, well, admit should be one to be considered. Is that well? It, you know, you're making me think back, Alex, to um, a campaign that I, a PR campaign I did way back in the in the early '90s for the Native American Rights Fund, and we did a national campaign to help uh, decriminalize the use of peyote for American Indians. Right. And um, you know, at the time, that was you know that was a you know, huge, huge spending by the federal government in the war on drugs, and it seemed like you know an absurd long shot. Uh, campaign. But what really turned it for us was we got the National Council of Churches on board because, because right. peyote is the centerpiece of so many uh, faiths in American Indian communities. And that was, you know, the rabbis and, and, and bishops and priests and, and cardinals. And when we brought that letter around to members of Congress, I'm talking, you know, hard rock rib righties all the way over to nanny state lefties, when they saw that the it had been, you know, literally and figuratively blessed, by an authority like that, they it, they all signed on, and it you know made me think about sort of the I don't know kind of the appeal to authority that's a big part of this too. I mean, it's right. no, it's no secret that that, that no, no, no little it doesn't take much thinking to figure out why Bloomberg would try to get so entwined with vital strategies because they're they are perceived as a leading authority in the public health world and other people are going to listen to them it's the same reason they co-opt the you know the the body part associations because look no further than the you know american lung association stamp of approval on this approved point of view right and then on the flip side and i'm not even necessarily making a point here um nor am i saying it's necessarily a bad thing but i think to you know harm reductionists who have been doing this on the ground for a very long time 
to then see, you know, like the CEO of Altria or something saying harm reduction out loud. I think it's a little, the landscape's a little jarring. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a big tent problem, isn't it? You know, you get you you, you have a big tent, and then there's, suddenly there's a lot of folks in the tent you might not otherwise want to have. Exactly. Exactly. That's a really big tent, too, by the way. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. So the tobacco people have been doing that for a while. I remember seeing uh, um, Senator Burr from North Carolina several years ago talk um, in a hearing. It might have been a hearing with Mitch Zeller where he referred to tobacco harm reduction. And I thought, oh, great. So Altry has taken up tobacco harm reduction now. Um, and that, you know, sure, that's what it was. That's where Burr's getting his information from. I mean, I'm trying to look at it in an optimistic way. You know, one of the things that's, that has struck <clears throat> me so much about, you know, the pro-vaping movement, if you want to call it such, is that it includes people from such a wide range of political perspectives. And I think that's a good thing. I mean, that to me reflects the strength of the movement and it's, you know, ideological ecumenism, if you will. Um, and maybe even, yeah, a little bit of forbearance with, you know, uh, allies that you might otherwise not be crazy about. Yeah, I, so I agree with that <clears throat> when it works in my favor and disagree with it when it doesn't. <laughs> That's a good standard. <laughs> <laughs> um well, let's let's talk a little bit about zero win on vital strategies. Uh, you know, we did a thread about that a few weeks back. I had um, some of the folks on our team do some research into vital strategies, nine nineties. And it, you know, it showed the, uh, you know, incremental and, you know, really sizable increase in donations that they've been getting from Bloomberg philanthropies. It's well into the nine figures now. Um, and it's hard to say for sure, cause a little bit of it's opaque, but it sure does look like, you know, Bloomberg has at the very least been increasing donations to this, you know, super high and now sustained level, because they want to take control over the way harm reduction is regarded, and especially to exclude uh, tobacco harm reduction. Um, but you guys are you guys are much more you know attuned to it as journalists and reporters, and you've done actual spade and shovel work on this. So I I open that to you. Is my is our sense of that in the ballpark? Sorry, Jim might be able to speak better this than me because um, I haven't really been following it but um i mean probably right but like you said it's pretty opaque i mean even when i look in a ctfk for example i mean you could tell that they're getting a lot of money but it's hard to sort of track exactly how the money's being spent if that makes sense so i mean i think the vital strategies people have been uh playing in the same ballpark for a long time probably before they got any large amount of bloomberg money but uh, in recent years, they've been involved in a lot of a lot of uh, Bloomberg-related things, like the the stopping tobacco organizations and products um, thing with uh, with Bath University mm -hmm. in the UK, and this quit big tobacco thing where they make a big deal out of uh, advertising companies uh, no longer working with the tobacco industry as if there was any tobacco advertising to do. Um, and then there are, there are other things that they've been involved with. But, I mean, I, it's no surprise that Bloomberg would pour money into any organization that wants to, to be involved with tobacco because that's what he does. And that's, that's um, I, I think a lot of vapors have the idea that Bloomberg is the brains behind all this stuff. He's not. He's the funder. And, you know, the brains are at Tobacco Free Kids and Bath and um, the union. Well, that's that was really the tell for me as we were doing our, you know, our research on on vital strategy, which, again, admittedly was, you know, was was cursory. But, you know, they had a seminar in, internally, which they put on their um, put on their website um, like a 90 minute seminar for all staff at Vital Strategies, at which they had, you know, Matt Myers, CTFK, the, the, the PAVE people and some of the uh, Johns Hopkins researchers deliver a lecture to the Vital Strategies staff all about why, you know, tobacco, you know, by, why vaping should be excluded from the tobacco harm reduction 
uh, discussion and, you know, just just watching it, a little bit of his intuition, but just watching the vital strategy staff who are, you know, have dedicated their careers to harm reduction after all, kind of their jaws dropping and their eyebrows raising. And the speakers like Myers were, were pretty explicit in saying we cannot talk about vaping in this way. And, you know, that was so striking to me. And, uh, you know, Alex, because they're so good on other harm reduction stuff. I mean, if you look at the work they're doing on opioid harm reduction, for example, I mean, it seems pretty, pretty stalwart to me. And I would imagine from the view of, I don't know, the Filter Magazine staff must warm your heart to see the way they approach opioid harm reduction. And yet suddenly they jar the steering wheel right, you know, off the cliff when it comes to tobacco. Yeah, I mean, I wish I, I wish I had an answer to your question. I don't, but I mean, it is, it is shocking to watch, you know, drugs largely move in one direction, right? Which is sort of mm -hmm. a greater acceptance, mm -hmm. and then to watch it almost go in the opposite direction with mm -hmm. a specific one, which is nicotine, which is obviously relatively, yeah, benign, all things considered. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's anyone's, it's anyone's guessing game about how this this sort of stuff operate it's and they're 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 somewhat impenetrable in a way because they don't yeah. i mean perhaps you know given the sort of lens through which i report um i'm not specifically saying vital strategies even at this point but it's hard to get people on the other side to even entertain a conversation with you um, yeah if if the if even even if the article is going to be you know nuanced and not one-sided if it's not their one side. We've been urging, you know, the new reporter at the New York Times who covers nonprofits, David Farenhold, to look into this. And I know that um, Mark Gunther, who's done terrific work on on covering Bloomberg philanthropies, is, you know, is speaking out about that the need for that scrutiny too. Yeah, so, I mean, you need you need a team of people to be I'll doing bet. this stuff. Yeah, indeed, um, yeah. indeed. But it, you know, it speaks to our next topic, which is about you know the latest research that's come out, and I think. A part of what Vital Strategies is doing or, you know, why, why, you know, CTFK and others are trying to, you know, guide them in a specific direction is to disqualify or mitigate the way that that, that, that researchers are looking at, at vaping. And um, so I want to talk about a couple of those items that came out today. I guess the first was the, you know, the sort of ludicrous story that was uh printed in the uh, New York Post about uh, a study from Johns Hopkins claiming that vaping spikes the risk of high blood sugar and diabetes. Um, and, you know, we've seen the tabloids, we've talked about this before, about the way they pick up on the clickbaity, you know, morally judgmental, splashy aspects, and they get to put, you know, photos of, you know, fashionable young people vaping. It, you know, it, it, it touches all of their catnip buttons, irresponsible though they may be. Um, but th that the study itself was just, was, was total bunk. You I mean, you might, you might as, just as easily have said vapors have half the risk that smokers do. And yet it got somehow completely inverted. Yeah. And on top of that, the, the, um, they, they weren't even med medically verifying that these people had high blood sugar or, yeah. <laughs> or were smokers. So yeah. it's just a nonsense study and it's a typical study. You know, it's funny. I, 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 I've worked in a, in my career in PR, worked in a number of different industries on, you know, in which there's two, you know, two sides of a, of a big public battle. And this, the battle of the studies is a common feature of these kinds of, you know, public fights, especially when there's, you know, federal policy involved. And, you know, yes, of course, both sides will fund research on aspects that suit their perspective on the argument. But I can't recall ever, ever in my whole career seeing as much money and as many studies poured into these ever more esoteric aspects uh, than I have on vaping. I mean, it's just, it's farcical at this point. I mean, everything from the, you know, the, the, the bone condition to uh, diabetes, weight loss, erectile dysfunction. I mean, and that's only scratching the surface on and on and on. I mean, no aspect is too obscure and it just staggers the imagination how much these researchers are being corralled in that direction. Yeah. I mean, the, the, um, the center for tobacco products at the FDA has got, you know, somewhere between three and five 
hundred million dollars a year to spend on on grants yeah. for these studies. They're not they're not studying cigarettes anymore. Right. So <laughs> that's where it's coming. Well, you know the, the NYU study that came out low about a month ago, um, which we did a thread about. I'll I'll have um, I'll have one of my guys put that in put that in the Twitter thread. But one of the things they pointed out was that. Uh, quote, in the U.S., research of e-cigarettes as a smoking cessation aid is not permitted because e-cigarettes are regulated by FDA as consumer tobacco products and not a medical device. As a result, only harm reduction studies are permitted and not cessation studies. So, you know, like FDA itself is legally, legally clamping down on research avenues, even as Bloomberg's pouring money into people who want to find a link between, you know, vaping and unicorn reproduction. Yeah. So one of the criteria that the, you know, there's, it's a joint uh, NIH FDA um, committee or whatever you call it that, um, that decides on a lot of these grants. And one of the criteria that they look at when they consider a, a, a proposed study is um, will it help the FDA better regulate these products? Wow. Wow. So, that that kind of lays the framework right there. It's just self-perpetuating, yeah. Yeah, and the obvious thing is if you're you're only going to look for harm, you're obviously only going to look for harm, right? Yeah. Well, it, you know, it brings us back a little bit to the, you know, the way the discussion unfolds. You know, there's a, there's a, a piece I saw as I was browsing for our chat this week, um, Alex, by your colleague Carrie Wade, uh, which she did back in 2019. The headline is, In the Tobacco Harm Reduction Debate, civility has gone up in smoke and she talks about the way that you know the the, the public conversation has gotten so vitriolic and um uh you know mutual mutually recriminatory that it's making sensible dialogue you know impossible um and she appeals to people in the harm reduction community to try to speak in a more civil way and sure you know and, and i i i i that's super thoughtful. And I, I, I take the point, although I have to admit, I'm kind of torn about it. I mean, the reason why is, you know, the author at the New York Post knows better and the people at Vital Strategies know better. The people that are doing these studies are smart, thoughtful, intelligent people. They know full well what's going on. It's not as if they overlooked something. I mean, it's, in other words, they're acting in bad faith is what I'm trying to say. And it's hard to and I'll add one more thing, too. They aren't interested in a conversation. You know, Vital Strategies won't, wouldn't even answer any of the thoughtful questions that were put in their in the thread for their Twitter spaces. Um, you know, Bloomberg won't meet with the leading thinkers in in, in, in tobacco policy. Uh, you know, good luck trying to call I don't know the New York Times to to get them to include our you know our voice in the coverage. So, at what point do you I don't know stop being polite and start being real to borrow a phrase? <laughs> I mean, I don't, um, it's hard to say from my perspective, obviously, because I think, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm just a reporter, right? I mean, very obviously I have a certain perspective, I suppose. Um, but like from my point of view, as long as I can keep covering this in a humane and I mean, normal way, whatever you want to call it. I mean, I think it's only helpful. That being said though, to your point about nobody on, you want to call it the other side of the aisle, the sort of prohibitionary camp. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a very clear problem that they don't want to speak. But um, at the end of the day, I do think their voices will, they'll be drowned out eventually. I mean, the, the evidence will just become so overwhelming. But I mean, that might just be my optimism. Well, you know, there was a, there's a good example of this this week. You know, uh, the um, terrific academic researcher, Michael Pesco, has a new study out, uh, which finds that, uh indoor vaping restrictions increase first year infant mortality. Um, and he got into a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a, uh, back tiff. tiff. Yes. A, yeah. a contretemps with, uh, Desmond Jensen, uh, who's a scientist with public health. Well, he's a public health lawyer. Um, and Jim, I know that you, you observed that and made a few comments about it as well on, on online. And I was just, I was struck myself at Desmond, a, his unwillingness to engage in any meaningful way with 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 Dr. Pesco, who, you know, is a 
extremely sensible, level-headed, thoughtful person, not a troll, not a loudmouth, like a, you know, decent, serious guy. And Desmond treated him as if he were, you know, I don't know, drunk at the end of the bar. Yeah, well, uh, so, I mean, Desmond is really a very happy-go-lucky kind of guy. Um, not really. Hmm. Uh, he's a, he's a you know, a big sourpuss. Yeah. And uh, he thinks he's right about everything, and he's not willing to entertain any other possibility. So I'm not at all surprised by how he reacted to, uh, to Pesco, who, as you say, is like very easy to talk to and probably very easy to disagree with yeah. and still have a pleasant conversation. Yeah. But uh, I, I'm, I'm not at all shocked. Well, I guess the part that really jumped out at me was, it was where Desmond said, uh, quote, there seems to be an attitude that anyone in favor of e-cigarette regulation is inevitably pro-cigarette use. And I'm kind of over it. So I, I was just, I was just kind of, baffled at his at his umbrage i mean i mean i think that's kind of an understandable reaction to all the pro vaping people who say you must be protecting the cigarette market or you are yeah. protecting the cigarette but he is protecting the cigarette market yeah. so yeah yeah be, be over it or not you're still doing it well right i mean he could you could i, I he, he could argue perhaps that's not the consequence i intended or if, if if we did it my way that wouldn't be happening or some right. other iteration but to but to, to 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 take exception to the actual real life outcomes of the regulations that he is in favor of just seems to be uh, sort of putting your hands over your ears and saying la 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 also, whether or not you want vaping to be regulated or not, it clearly is going to be regulated. Yeah. Like the, the, and much to, you know, everyone's chagrin. I mean, obviously the market is going to shrink immensely. And I understand why people are very upset about that. But like to think that vapors at large or small business owners uh, don't understand that this is what's happening is, I think, uh, futile and silly. Well, let's let's um, let's talk a little bit about that because that's a good transition to our next uh, topic, which is about um, synthetics. And um, you had a terrific piece in the other day, Alex, which we'll re up again as a link um, about what's happening with the state level um, attempts to, you know, crack down or ban or however you want to put it, restrict restrict synthetics. Why don't you give us a, give yeah. us a little sense of where that stands now and um, where what your forecast is. Well, yeah, right before I hopped on here, I was listening to um, the Georgia bill is, uh, it's currently being sort of debated. There's some people testifying, but they got too caught up in their uh, puppy mill and um, chicken policy discussion that they didn't get there by the time this started. So I don't know what the, the outcome of that is yet, um, but I can give, I can give a summary of sort of what's happening. If that's please. Helpful. Yes, please. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's a handful of states. I, I just focused on three of them because they're the most recent. It was Mississippi, Georgia, and Maryland. And they all have, essentially, they're being marketed as, or whatever you want to call it, um, product directory bills, meaning that there's going to be a list of FDA-authorized products. I suppose it'll be a short list that the public can basically look at and say, like, okay, that's authorized. I'll buy that one. Um but through this in a very roundabout way, because only these products are going to be allowed to be sold, that they're banning synthetic nicotine as almost, it's almost like de facto prohibition. And then on top of all that, you have um, uh, companies like Juul and other big tobacco producers sort of bankrolling, albeit modestly, it seems, um, the sponsors of these bills, because obviously, from a business perspective, they wouldn't want synthetic nicotine. Um, to be around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, that's, it was, that, that's really striking to me because I, I, I think I, I'm sorry to keep talking my own book, but I think of other clients I've had over the years that adopted what's called a regulatory capture strategy. And the, and the right. idea there for, you know, outside late, late people outside the beltway is the idea is you, you, you work with uh, regulators to increase or establish new regulations because if you're a big company, that what that does is it, it kind of freezes your market share in place and makes it much harder for smaller competitors and entrepreneurs to compete with you and take your market share. 
Um, and that seems pretty clearly what Jules' strategy was once they began having, you know, significant chunks of the market. And, you know, that I've, I've tried many a time to talk clients out of that strategy because it's, you know, I think it's unethical. It's self-defeating. Um, it does a disservice to your customers. It's dishonest. And sometimes I, I've talked them out of it and sometimes I haven't. And in this case, like not only did Jewel do it, that's what got them the big valuation. And guess what? Sure enough, the regulators have now turned on them. It's like, you know, they fed the crocodile in the hope that they would be eaten last now they're halfway down the crocodile's throat and guess they're still doing it. Like there's, I've never seen a company triple quadruple down on regulatory capture to the extent that these guys have, they've lost 40 billion BB billion in market value and they're still doing it. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to say, I mean, they'll, they're obviously not going to, I mean, I quoted them. They eventually commented. I mean, they're obviously not going to say any of that. They're going to say they're for, you know, FDA regulation. But I mean, I think it's interesting that I mean, often when we talk to it's like we're saying the same thing over and over again, right? It's the same story repeatedly. Um, and now you have, you know, Puff Bar, which very publicly transitioned to synthetic nicotine. And, you know, I think it's sort of implied that some of these other companies think that Puff Bar, which is, let's say, on their level, right, um, is going to tarnish vaping's reputation further or retarnish it um because kids find disposables yeah fun yeah well jim I, i'd be curious your view on how uh, i guess pro vape vape companies or you know manufacturers across the board are regarding the synthetics debate and the reason i ask is that i think in a lot of the coverage of it uh, ranging from national outlets like Politico down to more regional or local press, they seem to be emphasizing that, oh, even even vape manufacturers are in favor of this common sense regulation. There's just no sense at all that there's anyone who differs with that outlook. And yet, I don't think that's really the case. Well, I, the independent vaping industry has never, never been um, given any uh, position in anything by the press or or politicians it's you know when they when they talk about the huge threat of you know teenage vaping it's always jewel and when they talk about you know jewel's always jewel has 75 percent of the market they don't they have 75 percent of half of the market or they used to um but Nobody ever pays attention to the independent companies that make up thousands, thousands of small businesses in this country. And that's, you know, that's, I don't think ever going to stop at this point. But, um, you know, I was going to mention the regulatory capture. I think maybe the reason that Juul is so committed is because of their um, connections with Altria, who, you know, really hit the ball out of the park with regulatory capture in the tobacco control act. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, yeah. <laughs> that was their whole point of getting behind that. Well, it works. It, I mean, it, I hate to say it, but that, that strategy often works. I think in the near term and despite it's, you know, ethical bankruptcy, it, you know, in yeah. the market, I don't know, on wall street, let's say it does work. Yeah, absolutely. And so like around the year, you know, 2000, there were the term big tobacco encompassed several companies, seven or eight companies. And those, those all but two of those companies are now owned by the other two. So it's just, you know, if you take away uh, advertising, who does that hurt? It hurts the small companies that are trying to compete with the bigger ones. Um, all, All cigarette companies wanted to do with advertising was, increase their market share or protect it. Yeah. So it hurt, it didn't hurt Altria or RJ Reynolds to get rid of advertising uh, or, or right. to do you know, anyway. So my point is that the tobacco companies have always been big on regulatory capture and um, Juul is pretty much peopled by Altria staff at this point. Well, you know, uh, Paul Blair, who's the uh, head of government affairs at Turning Point Brands, a significantly sized company, has a terrific thread today that I saw you noticed, Jim, and we retweeted it too, all about 
how his uh, team views synthetics. And it seems to reflect what I think most people in the manufacturing space think about it, that it's an important innovation that ought to, you know, ought to be able to, you know, uh, you know, find its consumers and, you know, it's a much, much more sensible way to look at it. And, you know, yeah. And I, so kudos to Paul Blair, because I don't think his company has any synthetic products. So, yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. You know, that's a very generous point of view to take for a, for a publicly traded company that doesn't make any of those products. Well, you know, you'll be interested to hear, Jim. We had, we had a, um, Amanda Wheeler and I had a knockdown drag out with uh, Politico, um, their reporter on, on the FDA vaping policy beat Catherine is Catherine Foley. And we, you know, uh, we contacted her and her editor, Dan Goldberg, about the most recent story she did on synthetics, which again, seemed to suggest that there was total consensus that synthetics ought to be regulated and there needs to be a crackdown and it's got to be stopped. Don't you know? And I was trying to tell them, look, you know, every major association, every trade association in the vaping space is in favor of synthetics. And if they want, you know, in regulations, it's about to, you know, ensure it's, I don't know, authenticity or to make sure that it's not, you know, being fraudulently sold, but everyone thinks it's a good thing and a positive step forward and an innovation and et cetera. And that's not reflected in the piece. And you would have thought, I don't know, it, it, I, I couldn't get my head around their intransigence on it. They just seemed utterly unwilling to accept or include. Like I was telling her point blank, we will go on the record and say that in your story about synthetics and how the industry is regarding it. And you would have thought we were talking about, I don't know, casserole recipes. I can't. Yeah, I don't want to. I can't speak um, toward what they were doing exactly. But I think part of the problem is people tend to just whoever it is, the public at large or reporters who are not like completely in the weeds um, tend to view it through a sort of, you know, big tobacco or Silicon Valley framework, right? Um, sort of leaving behind the rest of the industry. And then I think another part of the problem is it's really confusing, right? Which I struggle with too, because, you know, you're writing an article and then you have to spend, you know, a paragraph and a half mm -hmm. explaining the inane PMTA process to someone who doesn't understand it, right? And then also, that's not the point of this article at all. The point of this article is about synthetics, but like without this framework to understand it, it's it's very difficult, which is something I often struggle with where it's like, I don't want to be writing toward, you know, the three same people, right? Yeah. Like I want other people to have a sort of larger, more cohesive view of all this stuff. Um, but I think that's often what happens, right? It's like, this is, this is the scope. This is the perspective. This is... Yeah who I talk to, this, like, this is what's going on, but to add more things into it just makes it more complicated. I mean, obviously it's complicated, but. Um, well, I guess the case, I mean, the case I was trying to make to them is, and this, this is a pattern in not just their synthetic story at Politico, but in the whole of their coverage on vaping, which is, you know, there, there are, there are, you know, several different sides to this and it would be far more interesting for, I don't know, readers and more informative for policymakers and your subscribers to hear from those different sides. Like I'm not arguing that they should, I don't know, tamp down or make a caricature out of the coverage. Quite the opposite. I'm, I'm saying no, no, it'd no. be better, more interesting, more vibrant, like informative reporting. And yet here I am on bended knee pleading with you to include a quote about the very topic you're writing about. It's like pulling teeth. It, does, it just doesn't make any sense to me why they would, you know, Jim, 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 what do you want? They got a quote from Tony. Abu. Well, that's a great that's I'm glad you brought that up. I know it. And, and that's that's what makes me think they're acting in bad faith is because they, they quoted the head of the Vapor Technology <clears throat> Association, Tony Abood, saying, yeah. at least in the quote, that he thought synthetics should be you know regulated. And, and, and the piece made it seem as if he agreed with the you know Matt Myers and others in the piece who wanted you know full crackdown. But. If you look at what Tony's actually been saying publicly in presentations and online in recent weeks and months is that he, again, thinks synthetics are an important innovation and that we have to be very careful if they're going to be regulated because we don't want to cut it off from the market. I mean, again, all the things that, that, that a pro vaping viewpoint would say. And so I pressed Catherine and her editor on that. I was like, you misrepresented, you know, how these guys <clears throat> regard it. You made it seem like he wants a crackdown, oh. but he doesn't. And they had no explanation. Well, I also think people somehow like associate regulation with just prohibition, yeah. right? Like, um, re like regulate synthetic nicotine, fine, right? But like, I think people are fearful 
that the government's going to screw it all up. And I rightfully understand that perspective. Yeah. So I, I think that um, Alex is right earlier when he said you, you kind of need a team to write about this topic. Mm-hmm. So if, if you had, uh, let's say, ProPublica go into this and plan a series of pieces and have like three different researchers and reporters each pick a chunk of it to do, they might do a better job mm-hmm. than one reporter. But I'm not sure because you kind of have to have how all these things interact with each other down to get the right, to get a grasp of it. And I think that anybody who covers this topic, this sounds crazy because they just don't do this anymore, but you'd almost have to study it for a year before you write the thing to get it right. And, you know, very few people get it right. Well, you know, there used to be, uh, there used to be, there's a heyday in the blogging era, uh, of what were called conspiracy blogs. And it was uh, Eugene Volokh, the great law professor, constitutional law professor started it. And it was, his blog was about, you know, federal appeals law. And it was called the Volokh Conspiracy. And, and what was great about it was that they would include, you know, four, six, eight or more legal scholars all weighing in on the same case or the same issue, you know, from varying perspectives. And often they would, often they would have very vigorous disagreement about you know, the particulars. And I just, it just makes me, you know, really wish that there was something like that in our issue space where we could have a, you know, a variety of disparate voices who could, you know, have a kind of ongoing discuss public discussion and yes, even debate as, as these issues unfold. I mean, that might be a good solution to the civility problem too. you know, demonstrate by example that thoughtful people in this space could, could have that kind of multifaceted convo. But I just, I, I can think of plenty of people, starting with you two, who would be great at, and, and more than capable of doing that. But I'm at a loss to think of who on the other side would be game to take part. I would welcome any any kind of uh, – I'd really like to see uh, some kind of an event similar to ESIG Summit, but maybe not that many people. Um, like a, um, a long-form form debate. Like an Oxford, where... Oxford Unions type? debate yeah yeah and um and you know let matt myers speak for a half hour or whatever and and you know bring everybody on there and not everybody but you know you know i do people who can people who can talk for 30 minutes about something and and let them do it and then have a, a a wide open discussion but those people will not talk yeah yeah, that's the problem. Well, there's, I mean, there's a terrific <laughs> debate series here in New York City called the Soho Forum uh, that talks about, you know, has debate pro and con on issues of public topicality and import. And I'm going I'm, to I'm hoping to get in touch with them in the next few weeks to broach that idea with them because it's such a, you know, such a fascinating and interesting topic. It'd be perfect for their kind of debate. But again, I got to I'm going to have to caution them like you may have trouble getting a lasso on somebody who will who will argue the pro-regulatory side yeah i mean it so the other thing is the reason they won't debate well there's probably a lot of reasons but the main one is they have um you know they control the the narrative now so yeah we're talking about reporters not doing a good job hell most of the time, all reporters do is present like a prepackaged tobacco-free kids right. presentation, and it's all brought to them. Here's the topics, here's the issues, and here's the quotes from Mr. Myers. Right. Well, that's please include them, and that's and that's that gets back to why I why I find it so difficult to muster the kind of you know Marcus of Queensberry civility that a lot of folks in our world are are urging because. There is no conversation and it's all just a pure power struggle. And we are completely outgunned and outfinanced and we're being told explicitly to shut up. The FDA is outlawing what we're doing. They're shutting down research that would, that, that, that's important aspects of what we're talking about. I mean, I, I mean, at what point do the, do the, do the Jackie Bouvier elbow gloves come off? And we're the lucky ones in most of the world. There's right. not even this much discussion about it. Right, right. Well, I was actually astounded. I, I, we, uh, you, uh, in our Twitter thread this week, I uh, 
stumbled across an interview that Amanda had done back in September with uh, the BBC. And so uh, I, I urge anyone to listen to it. It's in our in our Twitter threads, about a 20 minute segment. And Jim, the, the contrast between the way the BBC covered this issue with compared to, I don't know, CBS or Politico or others is just like the difference between Crayon and Mozart. I mean, they included every perspective. It was thoughtful, you know, outcome focused. It just, it was, it was, it was like going to another planet. Yeah. Well, you know, once in a while we get that here in this country. Um, I mean, CBS did a good program one at one point about uh, vaping, but uh, most of the time not. And I think it's just easier to, to take the dom- let the dominant side. Yeah control the story well right and, and that's that again is where i think it crosses the line for me from you know good faith oversight into bad faith slanting i mean tony Docapil at cbs who did the morning show uh pieces in recent months knows better because he says so on twitter and they've done coverage yeah. in the past and he understands the drug policy space intimately and so it's not as though he just is you know rip and run copy he's he knows better and that that's what disqualifies it for me um as as any kind of good faith interaction that, that that's when it becomes but, willful slanting but he's also kind of the guy who just comes in at the last minute and does the part that you see on the air i suppose so but notice notice too you know in his in his memoir and in stuff that he's written himself he's he has written very extensively and thoughtfully about the drug war and drug regulation implications you know his dad got caught up in federal drug enforcement um and so he knows about it cares about it written about it, thought about it and to my surprise after his initial piece on puff bar he engaged with a lot of you know, uh, voices on Twitter from our side of the of the debate in a thoughtful way and said, yes, I understand a lot of people, you know, use this for smoking cessation. So, you know, he's not just an actor who got, you know, puffed with makeup and walked on set. He knows about it. So this is a a, a big problem in almost all stories about vaping. Um, No matter what they say in the story, all they have to do is set it up as uh, um, here's uh, a professor from the University of California, and then here's the the CEO of Puff Bar. Right, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that's no kind of a story. Well, what, that's, welcome to my world of PR, Jim. I mean, that's that's like that's the model for every story about any Fortune 500 company anywhere. You know, four voices saying they strangle cats, stiff waiters, and push grannies off a cliff. Oh, the CEO didn't call us back. They had nothing to say. Eh. Yeah, so formulaic. But I guess there's another story that's out there I wanted to ask you guys about, which is um, another study that was out that says uh, uh, headline is um, uh, this was in uh, a medical journal on tobacco control uh, headline. One year later, smokers awareness of Valley and perceived impact on e-cigarette interest. And it shows that. Um, the outcome was that 54% of people who smoke cigarettes and had heard of Evali said it made them less interested in vaping in the future. And again, to, to my mind, this one is so cut and dried. Again, Michael Pesco has done outstanding, indispensable work on this topic, but it's like indisputable, undebatable, cut and dried smoking gun that CDC has misled the American public, which is their you know cardinal reason for existing to the immense detriment of more than half the people who smoke cigarettes. And yet the AP writer who sits there in the, his office in the CDC every day or the po- reporters at Politico, I mean, look at look at that story like yesterday's Western omelet, just could not care less. Yeah. You know, the, the other half of that that doesn't get mentioned very often is that more than 2,000 people wound up in the hospital because they were told e-cigarettes caused E-Valley. My God. Well, it's like that. Did you see the ad this week, uh, Jim, that uh, I want to say it was a British vaping company did those bus shelter poster ads and the ad simply quoted what the British health authorities had said about vaping and the anti groups were like trying to get them, you know, charged with a breaking the law. But but it struck me that's that was such a clever strategy because, you know, you could cherry pick the the parts of which, I don't know, Scott Gottlieb, let's say, or even Califf 
has testified or said publicly that we don't want to deter people from using this as a smoking cessation method. I mean, yeah. it'd probably be, yeah. it'd probably be against the law to run an ad like that, but you know, you'd be quoting them verbatim, wouldn't you? Um, I think it would be against the law for industry to do it. So this is a big problem is that, um, it, you know, anybody in the vaping industry has to be super cautious about what they say publicly because they're not allowed to claim that not just that there's that vaping is safer. They're not even allowed to compare any two forms of tobacco product yeah. in any way. Yeah. It'd be, it, would, it would be an interesting, I don't know, just in theory, an interesting federal law case if, if, if quoting a federal health authority verbatim is, a, is against the law. <laughs> yeah, we should get every vape shop in the country to put up a sign yeah. quoting um, Zeller's yeah. to Judge Grimm. There it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just absolutely crazy. And the, the part that's, that troubles me about that is that, you know, the notion of public health credibility FDA's credibility and CDC's and even the White House um, in the wake of COVID or as we're going through COVID is of huge national importance. These guys believe ability and trust with the American public is has got smoke coming out of all four engines. And here, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why they won't change the name. Not that it yeah. would do much now, I imagine, but it would be a very simple right. acknowledgement. Um, and I know Pesco and, and company have urged them to yeah. um but i have i have no idea why they haven't changed them i i did i did i did FOIA for some stuff that um just to sort of see how they came upon the name itself so um yeah get back to me and i don't know 2025 and maybe right. i'll have a i'll have an answer for you but <laughs> well you're well you're reminding me alex about the about the uh, the 2021 youth tobacco survey results which i think are still in limbo low three to three months plus since they were finalized. Do you guys have any latest info on that? No, that, that stuff's usually out in uh, December or January, right? That's right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you could you could sort of feed into the rumor mill, and I, I don't really like to speculate, but I mean, maybe, you know, I keep hearing these sort of rumors swirling around that there's there might be authorizations soon, things are going to happen, because Caleb's obviously there, Zeller's um, leaving, um, so I don't know, maybe they just do a massive dump at some point and say, here, here's all the news, figure it out. Um, but I don't know. I mean, my, maybe. my conspiratorial hunch is they don't like the, the, the numbers that resulted and they're trying to, but they also say you can't compare them anyway. Yeah. So who even cares what the numbers are in that sense? Like if they're saying they've caveats immediate that you can't compare them to before the pandemic or whatever, I don't understand why. Well, guess what? I've got, I've got good news yeah. for the for the CDC Public Relations Office. Rest easy, guys, because Politico is not going to scrutinize anything you put out. So, you know, <laughs> breathe easy. A um, couple things I wanted to wrap up with. One is whether you guys uh, saw we, we've been at, at American Vapor Manufacturers rooting for a PGA Tour golfer named Kiradesh Appy Barnrat, who is from Thailand. Very cool guy who quit a longtime cigarette habit through vaping, and he uh, vapes during his rounds. Maybe the only professional athlete I can think of that can say that. And um, we'll be playing this week in the uh, Tour Championship in Ponte Vedra, very big tournament. So I've got I'm kind of selfishly crossing my fingers that NBC shows vaping on the 17th tee. I don't know if you guys have followed him at all. Have you, have you caught wind of that one? I, I know what you're talking about. I've seen it. Uh, I will say if anybody follows me on Twitter, I am often tweeting about golf and, oh, no kidding. and vaping. Um, and I, uh, no, I will say, I will say whenever I golf, I, I do love to uh, vape constantly. So there's that. I, I, well, I listen, I don't know. I, I told this story the last time I think I was doing the Twitter spaces, but Alex, you'll be amused to know that I can claim that I played in a match three years ago in DC against Alex Azar. And his uh, his, uh, his buddy, yeah, we were paired with them inadvertently in this in this tourney I was playing in, and I vaped the whole round. And uh, finally, by the ninth tee, Azar was so bent out of shape about it, he he confronted me and said, "Jim, I need I need to know why why do you feel like you need to vape?" And uh, his partner was kind of chuckling at how much it was bothering Azar. And yeah, the the, the secondhand vape got to his head. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so I, I decided to sort of twist the knife a little bit, and I said, "Well." 
you know, it helped me quit uh, smoking Marlboro cigarettes. So it probably saved my life. But I said, the bigger reason is that the government and the press have so demonized vaping that every time I, I use my vape, I feel like I'm, you know, Clint Eastwood or Steve McQueen. And, uh, <laughs> Slice. See, I know. I know what you mean. He, yeah. he sliced his next shot into the woods. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Jim, for screwing us out of the streamlined PMT. Right. That's probably that was uh, probably it. That, that, he probably drove yeah. home from that and said, "That's it for the streamline. We're doing switcheroo now." <laughs> so um, I, I'm not a, a golf fan. Um, my parents were both really good golfers, and I was kind of pushed into mm-hmm. it. And so since I've been about uh, like a young teenager i've tried to avoid it but um i can tell you this uh vaping is illegal in thailand right i mean it's not illegal to vape but it's illegal to buy or sell vapes right 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 well you know let's not forget too in the in the 50s and 60s the great arnold palmer was a tobacco spokes flack and did advertisements for cigarettes and smoked on the course and that had a huge cultural impact. So I'm kind of, I don't know, hoping against hope that the super cool Kiradesh Epi Barnrat, who is a, is a cool guy, he you know drives, he's got like, got a cool Ferrari and he buys like a sneaker fiend. He buys all the cool sneakers. <laughs> he does have some street cred, if I may put it that way. So I don't know. I'm sort of hoping he, he pulls something off. Um, so listen, before we wrap, guys, I wanted to ask you each uh, two things. One, uh, what are you following online um you can follow alex uh, and and uh, at filter mag and and jim mcdonald at vaping 360 i think most of most of our audience know that but i wanted to ask if you guys had recommendations for our audience on what they might want to follow what are you looking at online that's interesting or unusual or out of the off the beaten path wow that's out of the blue well i'll, I'll ask it i'll ask it a different way uh uh, what do you what are you going to be looking for upcoming in your reporting and with your kind of journalistic uh, binoculars? What do you what are you going to be following with topics in coming days and weeks? Um, state uh, bills, taxes, flavor bans, synthetic. Um, I, I'm I have a gigantic list of things that I'm always looking at to see if anything's happening, and. Um, it almost doesn't make sense if I just read it off to you, but um, some things that uh, I have an article about the CDC that I'll have out sometime soon. Um, soon Canada will have uh, its flavor ban in place. Curious to see what that's going to look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, Australia's got uh, suddenly has an epidemic of youth vaping mm-hmm. after they crack down even further on their <laughs> already very difficult regulations. Right. I think that's, uh, oh, I don't want to say it's funny. That would be wrong. But, Ironic. Um, yeah. Especially compared to New Zealand. Yeah. Um, New Zealand is an interesting, uh, that's almost a discussion unto itself. But, uh, yeah, it is. Um, Alex, what are you looking at in coming days? Um, similar things to Jim, honestly, but I, I will say um, – uh, which I did tweet about probably three weeks three weeks ago, but I went to uh, I went to Dallas recently and I hung out with the Triton people who are obviously um, yeah. currently suing the FDA. So um, that is on my uh, Jim described it as an incomprehensible list, but I, I tend to refer to it as a carousel of things I've not completed yet. So it's on the uh, it's on the carousel, but I uh, I'm just debating whether or not I kind of wait until there's a decision, honestly, or if it's worth it to publish um, beforehand. But um, it was a fascinating little little trip. I'll say that. This was just a, it, like you visited their manufacturing facility. Yeah, yeah. I just went. I hung out with um, hung out with the owner. I visited their manufacturing facility. I'd never been to because um, it's interesting because I think I think the debate or whatever you want to call it, it's te- it tends to be you know the real big industry and then like very small mom right. and pop shops. But like watching somebody sort of in the middle where you know he has enough money to sue the government. Right. Um, right. I just sort of see the self-regulation, uh, they go through, like, I was honestly pretty, uh, impressed by it. And it's shocking to me that like the government's not visiting there or saying like, you should be doing this or that works or whatever. Like it would be, um, conceivably 
not as hard as they make it out to be. Let's put it yeah, that way. Standards-based regulations. Yes, exactly. That the vaping industry has been asking for for 10 years. We, yeah. Yep. Well, you're making me think of our, our colleague, Greg Conley, who was flying down to Georgia to testify today and tweeted that he was sitting on the plane with an unnamed CEO of an anti-vaping group. And so uh, uh, I thought he did. He did tell me who it was, but I don't want to. Uh... I don't want to. I don't want to sell them. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe think of a. We should, there should be like a Samuel L. Jackson uh, sequel, "Vapes on a Plane." Yeah, exactly. yeah. I've written that article. Did you? Okay. <laughs> uh, well, that's a good note to end on. So, uh, Jim, Alex, thank you, gentlemen, both for uh, taking time and keeping the conversation going. We'll um, have another good session next Monday. And thanks to everybody for listening. And uh, guys, we'll stay in close touch. Yeah.